1: This is New Books in Science Fiction, a production of the New Books Network. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the Me and My Shadow edition. My guest today is Pung Shepard, author of The Book of M. Her debut novel has gotten tons of praise from places like The Today Show, USA Today. It was one of Amazon's best science fiction and fantasy books of 2018. And a reviewer on Bustle called it a post-apocalyptic masterpiece. And since I love to talk about masterpieces, and who doesn't, I am thrilled that Punk Shepard is on the line with me now. Thanks for coming on the show, Punk.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Well, why don't we just dive right in to the apocalypse? (laughs) Okay. The apocalypse in your story, it starts with an epidemic, but it's a very unusual one. The first case occurs during a special celebration in India called Zero Shadow Day. Can you describe what that event is and what happens to Hemu Joshi, who is the first patient to suffer from this new condition?
0: Uh, sure. Um, and actually, I do want to say, uh, I think the uh, my favorite part about Zero Shadow Day is that it's not something I made up for the book. It's actually a real... Uh, actual day that happens every year in India, which I just thought, I I came across it when I was researching, like before I started writing the first draft, and it's just the coolest thing. Basically, um, so if you haven't read the book, the real Zero Shadow Day is um, a day every year in India, falls in late spring, and if you are outside on a certain day, or I mean at a certain time on that day, uh, everything's shadows will disappear for just a few seconds to a few minutes. And it's a, it, just a, it sounds like fantasy, but it's not. It's completely real. And um, when I first kind of, you know, found that in my research, I just knew I had to put that in the story. That had to be the way that everything kicks off. And so I used that kind of real-life event to further the fiction.
1: I suppose that happens because the sun is directly overhead?
0: Yes, it is. Yeah. But only in that, you know, only in on that spot in that moment.
1: So for this character, Hemu Joshi, he is enjoying the day, but then when everyone else's shadow returns, his actually doesn't.
0: Right. And at first, you know, I don't want to give too much away in the book, but at first it just seems like this wonderful, magical miracle that's happened to him. And he kind of becomes this overnight celebrity because it would be, you know, it would be a pretty amazing thing to see a crowd of people who all have shadows as usual. And then there's this one guy that just doesn't. He has no shadow.
1: And so do you want to talk a little bit about the consequences of that? Because basically, I mean, I don't think it's disclosing, I mean, it's it's at the heart of the book that the epidemic that eventually passes across the world is that people start losing their shadows. And really losing your shadow is kind of the least of it because that there are some very serious consequences, as it turns out, to losing your shadow.
0: Right. Yeah. So it ends up being a sort of double-edged sword because if you are a person that loses your shadow, you gain um, kind of essentially magical abilities. But every time you use that magic, you will lose one of your memories forever. And so that kind of, uh, that really throws the world into chaos it's because after this event start, you know, that starts spreading, you have all these people with such great new power, but they are forgetting you know, who they are and what they care about and, and what things mean to them.
1: And the memory loss, people, as you say, they, they lose progressively. What is the ultimate result?
0: It's really total. There are some of the characters in the book who, um, you know, as they start to lose more and more and they start to worry about uh, what they're going to have left or what there is left to lose, They some of them are afraid of even forgetting how to breathe anymore, which would mean death.
1: Your book is interesting on many levels, and the way it integrates the seemingly impossible with the seemingly very plausible and familiar, makes it compelling. Obviously, losing a shadow seems to be pure fiction. I assume it is, unless you have some insight into another dimension where maybe that does happen. (laughs) But memory loss isn't. That is a real thing. And I wondered, did you research different types of memory loss? And were you striving for a true-to-life portrayal of that? I mean, for instance, does the kind of memory loss people suffer from mirror... Alzheimer's or some other kind of dementia?
0: I think in some cases for some of the characters, it definitely does, um, especially in moments when they realize that they have forgotten something, but they can't figure out what it is they've forgotten, which I think is common and I'm sure really terrifying thing that happens to people that suffer from Alzheimer's and dementia. But I actually didn't want to get too super scientific about it since the reason that they are losing their memories is kind of an inherently magical thing. I thought that if I push science really hard, it might start to all just kind of break apart, because it's essentially a, a magical curse.
1: What made you connect shadow and memory? And I guess going even a little deeper into the shadow idea, what do you think about shadows makes them so fundamentally compelling to people? And I'm thinking of little kids, you know, when a little kid first discovers they have a shadow, you know, it's this amazing thing to play with and test and Uh, you know, do shadow games with. And then, of course, there's lots of mythical stories about shadows and their religions that use words like shade to refer to the soul or spirit.
0: Well, I think part of the reason that humanity has been so fascinated with them across cultures is because of that kind of that very fact that they are so universal, like every single person has a shadow, but every single person's shadow is totally unique to just them, because it is, you know, it is the dark copy of yourself. It's something that you share with everyone, but you also share with no one. And memory is kind of the same way, too. Everybody has memories, but everybody's memories of each event or person are different and individual. And you can understand the concept of someone else's memories, but you can't really experience them or know them in the same way that that person can. And so there's something really common and widespread, but also really precious and you know, singular about a person's shadow or a person's memory.
1: Well, it's interesting because you do take this thing, memory, which is inherently so internal and, as you say, something that you can't normally see, but you build a bridge between this internal thing and the outside world because suddenly the shadow becomes the signal for that. So you can basically tell if someone's lost their memory because if they don't have a shadow, you know... Eventually, now they're gonna forget who they are and how to drive, and even how to speak. And I think the magic is a little like that too. The magic seems to be like memory made external.
0: Yeah, it really it is. I sort of, um, I kind of drew a little bit of inspiration from how I imagine a person with Alzheimer's might feel, because you know, when like when I forget, or most people forget something, but you realize you've forgotten it. I think it's a very natural and human thing to try to fill in the blank with your kind of best logical guess based on what else you do remember or what seems to be the case kind of right in front of you or what's logical. And that's sort of where I went with the magic was when a person who was forgetting something realized they were forgetting something and they, in a very human way, tried to fill in that blank and that fear with something, the most next familiar thing, it ends up affecting the world in a very real way because they have this
1: magical power it reminds me of lucid dreaming where people can control what they see and do but it's a dream oh
0: yeah yeah
1: yeah but here this the shadowless as the people who without shadows are referred to in the book the shadowless they can do the same thing but they're in the real world and and they're not dreaming but it very much feels like a dream because you have all these kind of amazing things that appear you know deers with wings for ears and little clouds that make little tinkling bell sounds and, I mean, all kinds of fantastic things that feel very dreamlike.
0: Or I guess if you were um, a person still with a shadow and and didn't have that magic, probably kind of more like a nightmare.
1: Right, exactly. (laughs) For the people with shadows, it's true. And your book is a journey story as well. People are in search of something, and at its core, the journeys seem to be motivated by love, love of a person. One of your main characters, Ori, is searching for his wife who lost her shadow. And there's another character who has lost his husband. And both of those people who are searching have their shadows and the people who who they love have lost their shadows.
0: Well, I think that's kind of, um, you know, from the side of the people that still have their shadows, their greatest fear is the people who have lost their shadows, you know, that they care about forgetting them, I think, and forgetting their love and all the, the, you know, the memories they have together. Uh, because love and memory are so, you, you kind of can't have one without the other. Or I guess that's the question the book asks is, can you have one without the other? Because they are really closely linked. And so I think that is kind of a central question that the characters, especially with shadows, worry about.
1: Well, there's a lot you don't say about the epidemic, like how or why it starts or the mechanism that allows it to spread. And you've just explained, because of its magical premise, there maybe isn't a lot of science or to try to create science around it might might ruin the momentum. And I think that's true. I think withholding the information makes the story more effective. But I couldn't help but wonder if you yourself had a theory, some kind of disease theory about its origins or how it spreads
0: um i actually well i was discussing this with my editor because she asked me to she said she wasn't sure if she wanted a reason to be revealed either like a you know a cause or a root but she did wonder if um i had like a one specific truth about it that just wasn't in the book um and i think the answer for me is that I believe a little bit of what each of the characters believe. There are some characters that believe it's like, a, like an illness, a sickness, and then there are others that believe uh, that it's karma, and then some others believe it's some kind of a curse that was awoken. Um, and I ended up going that route, having a couple of possibilities, because I sort of felt like if this really did happen to all of us and the world was plunged into this um, you know, kind of dreamlike forgetting state, Probably nobody would have the answer, and every, but everyone would have their theories. Some make more sense than others. Um, but, but when I did that, when I had each character kind of have their own personal hypothesis and, you know, they argue about it sometimes with each other, that made it feel like actually more real to me because I think that is what would happen in a situation like this that was so kind of global and so total.
1: One thing your book underscores for me is how much people rely on each other's knowledge. And I'm not talking about the knowledge of people we know. It's all about the knowledge of people we never have met in our lives, like the people who work in the electric plant. When they forget how to run the plant, suddenly you don't have electricity. Or, or the people who fly planes, and if they forget how to be pilots or manage flight traffic, then the world falls apart really, really fast.
0: It does. It was, uh, it was actually really interesting to write the first draft because I would constantly come to a moment where my characters would do something and I think oh wait you can't do that because the world ended and nobody's going to remember how to turn that back on anymore or like you know get that thing started up so I had a bunch of it was almost like I was sort of experiencing the same kind of apocalypse as them because we both just kept hitting like technological and kind of societal dead ends together in the first draft.
1: And your book also has a very mythic quality, like you're creating your own mythology. And one thing I was curious about is the story you tell about a famous elephant that I understand actually existed. So this is a part of real history, just like the mm-hmm. Zero Shadow Day. But there was this elephant in Kerala, India, that lived in a temple, a temple elephant. And its name was, I'm going to give it a shot anyway to say its name.
0: <laughs> okay. Okay.
1: Gajarajan Guruvayur Keshavan. Amazing. Thank you. <laughs> yes. So the elephant was real, but there's a story you tell about memory related to the elephant, and I'm guessing that that's something that you made up.
0: So that story, I think we could tell a little bit about it without spoiling it, um, but the story involves memory and it also involves painting, and the memory part of the story is more made up, although elephants are kind of famous for having these you know, amazing memories they never forget. Um, But the painting part is actually real. There are elephants that have learned how to paint um, and kind of do so regularly.
1: I I don't think it would ruin the story. And if you decide it does, we can edit it out. So, folks, if you're hearing it, then Pung decided it was okay to leave in. But (laughs) the elephant is painting something that it's never seen, but that its relative, a sister, has seen. So, in other words, it's not just its own memory, but it has sort of the collective memory of another elephant, as if it could be somehow communicated to it. And it's very beautiful, and it's just another exploration of memory. That's how I saw it. I thought, wow, you're really looking at memory from so many different ways, and you're sort of testing the limits of it and really exploring all different ways it might work.
0: Yeah, it's definitely pushed past what elephants can can, can truly do. But elephants, they have a lot of stories about these you know, baby elephants that were, you know, just barely born at a time that the matriarch of that herd took them across the, the land to this watering hole that they only visited once when they were like an infant. And then 80 years later, when they are the matriarch, they will lead the tribe there to that same watering hole, despite not having been there for just so long. And it felt sort of like, because they live in the same kind of communities we do and they communicate with each other um, and they really have their own culture their own relationships. And um, a lot of scientists argue even their own rituals, especially around death. And so it sort of felt like if anyone or anything was going to be able to push past our current beliefs about memory into something more, it might be elephants.
1: There's an important character in your book who suffers from a different kind of forgetting. And he has classic amnesia, which he acquired before this epidemic even started. And it really manifests in a very different way from the memory loss that the shadowless suffer from. So he doesn't know who he is, but he's never forgotten his language. He doesn't forget it. He doesn't forget how to speak or what objects are called or that eating is important. And somehow, this becomes his strength, it seems, because he then becomes someone who tries to solve the epidemic, who has a perspective on it that's different than anyone else's. And I thought it was an interesting choice that in a book that's about the devastating effect of memory loss, you take this figure who, in the real world, is a tragic figure, I would think, someone who suffered amnesia and doesn't know who he is, but he becomes one of the book's heroes.
0: Yeah, he um he was a very interesting one to write. I actually had a lot of trouble with him in the early drafts because I couldn't figure out who he was. Uh, he was like a mathematician in the first draft, and then he was a psychiatrist, and then he was a con man. And as I got close to the, kind of the end of revisions, I realized that all these incarnations of him were kind of circling this idea of what he really was, but it wasn't quite there yet. And then when I finally realized that he would be the person best poised it, to kind of understand the shadow list and understand what they're going through uh, and identify with them better than the rest of the world, it was because he probably also had forgotten but in a different way.
1: You've mentioned several times, you've talked about multiple drafts, and I've read some interviews of yours, and it seems like, that's how you work. You work through many iterations of your story to figure out who the characters are. So I wonder if you could share just a little bit about the journey of writing this book, you know, how, how long did it take and what was the process like?
0: Sure. Um, I think it took, so I like to write the first draft kind of as fast as I can because I'm really susceptible to losing momentum and then kind of losing my way. So the first draft took maybe like nine months. Um, and it's a pretty long book. And then I spent almost the same amount of time actually just revising it, because when you write the first draft that fast, it's pretty messy and pretty loose. And there are a lot of parts that don't really work yet, like that character, um, who, you know, ended up in his final form as being a person with amnesia. He went through all of these different steps because I was writing so quickly. um, I didn't quite know what I was grasping at yet.
1: And then after those nine months, it was done? The second nine months?
0: Yeah, the second nine months, yes, then it was done.
1: And was the journey to publishing smooth, or was that, is there a story there as well?
0: I guess, well, I guess the story would be, I feel very lucky that it went very quickly. I think because I had really, I, I really, really worked hard in the revisions. The, the first draft was pretty, uh, it was pretty messy, but I worked really, really hard in the revisions, and I think it was very near its final form, um, and so the, the uh, submission process just took, I think, a couple, you know, like two weeks. I mean, it was still, you know, really terrifying for those two weeks. You know, lucky, luckily it went pretty quick and I was spared a long way.
1: You resisted the temptation to have one of the shadowless characters use their magic to solve the epidemic? Because I could imagine that one of them could have simply envisioned a world without the epidemic where everyone's memory was restored.
0: Maybe. Um, So the way that I, the logic that I had behind the magic was that because they're affecting reality with what they forget, the more that a memory meant to that person and the closer they were to that memory, the stronger their effect on the world would be. So, you know, for example, if you lost your memory and you were afraid of forgetting your mother. And then I had also somehow somewhere met your mother and I lost um, my memory of her. Your memory of her is stronger than me. So if I forgot her, probably nothing would happen. But if you forgot her, she would be in much greater danger. Uh, And so for a shadowless to be able to solve the entire world's epidemic, I'm not really sure who that would be if there could be a person like that. Like who, who might be close enough to that particular aspect of reality to be able to to affect it that profoundly on such a global scale.
1: Okay, so it couldn't have been done. I thought, here's the answer. That's how it's going to (laughs) end. Someone's just going to wish it away. It'll all have been a dream.
0: I probably should have had someone try it and then fail, yeah.
1: So quite often when one reads a book that is post-apocalyptic, as the book of M is, the cause is usually is often, I should say, rooted in some kind of social phenomena, so the book is framed as almost an allegory or a speculation about a plausible future, whether it's climate change or an epidemic that's an actual disease or some kind of political collapse of our infrastructure and norms and democracy. Yours, because it's based on a magical premise, lacks that connection to real-world situations. And so I wonder if it also lacks the kind of message that someone might be delivering, or is there some takeaway that you hope that readers might have about their lives and about the world as we know it in the real world today?
0: Yeah. um, I So yes, I think you're definitely right that because the cause of my apocalypse isn't like a you know the virus that escapes the lab or a nuclear explosion or you know global warming that's gone out of control, it's probably not so much the cause of the apocalypse that's sort of like a warning or the lesson there, but more what people do with it after, um, because we all, kind of all are going to face the situation of getting older. We're not going to be here forever, and we're going to start forgetting things. And so maybe the the takeaway is more what do you do with the time you have left? And, um, you know, how far would you go to protect the people that you love? What would you do for them? How would you stand up for them? And kind of what is most important, you know, because we all only have these few, I mean, relatively few, you know, in, in terms of the scope of the universe, we have each very few years, you know, to make all these memories. And so what are the most important ones to make and to keep?
1: Well, that sounds like a perfect note on which to conclude our conversation. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on New Books in Science Fiction.
0: Thank you for having me. Yeah, I, I had a really good time chatting about
1: it. Uh, I've been speaking with Pung Shepherd. She's the author of The Book of M, which came out in June from William Morrow. Please subscribe to New Books in Science Fiction and leave a review in the Apple Store. Your reviews help draw attention to the show and help others find us. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief and founder of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. I'm Rob Wolf. I'm the author of The Alternate Universe, and you can find me at robwolf.net. Thank you very much for listening.